You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 284, Restorative Justice with Steve Kim and Project Kinship. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Today, we're so glad to welcome the executive director and co-founder of Project Kinship, Steve Kim. Steve is the co-founder of Project Kinship, where he serves individuals impacted by gangs and incarceration with the aim to successfully reintegrate them back into the workforce, schools, and community. His dedication to breaking cycles of incarceration, gang membership, and community violence stems from over 15 years of working with traumatized and abandoned youth throughout Orange County. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I saw Steve really recently at our Priceless annual event where he accepted the Outstanding Nonprofit Diamond Award for Project Kinship. And our Diamond Awards are not just about we want to give somebody an award, but we want our community to see people doing this work well. And Project Kinship has done such an excellent job. We've been partners uh, with our Live to Free student. They are part of our community. Steve often speaks at Ensure Justice, and we'll put some links in case you want to hear more from him in the show notes. But we especially value the achievements of Project Kinship in our schools and in our community. And I want to start our conversation with a quote from you, Steve. You said about Project Kinship, the heartbeat of Project Kinship holds compassion and inclusion. It is a place where hope lives and people are reminded they are not a mistake Something powerful happens as this truth is embraced and people feel their worth. I'm curious, when you co-founded Project Kinship, did you have such a succinct idea of the vision for Project Kinship? I did, Sandy. I think um, I wasn't able to articulate it in such words at that time. but. I think what I've realized is for many years carrying the heavy weight of shame, being multiply marginalized, and then being with folks in the community who've carried um, similar similar burdens. And so I think carrying that for so much of my life and then seeing other folks in the community who've also carried and encountered the challenges, I think I've lived with it. And then when Project Kinship started, gave an opportunity to birth into life, an opportunity to heal together. And so we look at Father Greg and Homeboy Industries, and um, you know there are mentors and our heroes and uh, pioneered this work before us. And the way Father Greg and everybody at Homeboys have carried the heartbeat of kinship, love, and compassion 
gave us language and gave us a visual on um, how to do the work. And so um, I think over the years, we've found language to wrap around our pain and our healing. Wow. So not all of our listeners know what Project Kinship does. And it's probably going to be faster for you to tell us what you do than for me to do that. Okay. I'm still working on my elevator pitch, so I'm going to try to do it and <laughs> try to do it quick. We're in Orange County, and uh, we're a sister organization to Homeboy Industries, part of their global Homeboy Network. And um, we have lots of programming. We're in, I think, 32 schools, uh, four school districts doing something called restorative practices. And so we work with uh, many of the kids who uh, often fall into the school to prison pipeline, kids who are homeless, who experience significant amounts of trauma. So we do a lot of programming there. We're in the juvenile halls doing similar work with groups and individual um, programming and support. We're at the adult county jail. We have a team right outside the door. So every person who gets released, uh, we get to meet folks and greet them as they come out and get their first breath of fresh air. We offer services. We do a little bit of advocacy work. And of course, there's home base uh, in the city of Santa Ana where folks will come and uh, we have an array of services. But I think um, the services are great. Uh, but what we really do is we have created a beacon of hope uh, in Orange County where folks who have experienced significant trauma, violence, and incarceration, even generationally, can call home. And so I have a, just a quick story. Um, one of my mentors, Ruben, who I look up to, uh, got juvenile life at 16 years old. And um, I think he spent over 20 years. And at that time, juveniles could go to adult prison. And so if you can imagine how traumatic that, that could be, a 16-year-old uh, in a prison cell with 40-year-olds. And so he's out now, heavily tattooed from head to toe. And um, we moved into a new building, and they wanted me to write a quote on the wall. And so, you know, I was um, honored, and, and I usually have a lot to say, but I got writer's cramp. And um, I had difficulty writing something on the wall because everybody was going to see it when they walk in. And so... Probably about 15 hours later, came up with something like, in your darkest moment, never give up hope, blah, blah, blah. And the, more, the, ne- the day before it goes up, I asked Ruben uh, what, what he would write on the wall. I told him my quote, and he was like, nah, that's all right, you know. And so I laughed and said, well, what would you write? And in 15 seconds, he says, welcome to kinship, where judgment and pain are left at the door, you are home. And I thought, holy cow, how did you come up with that in 15 seconds? And he said, whenever people look at me, it looks like they've been into a sour lemon. And um, when I come to kinship, I feel like I'm embraced and I'm welcomed. And I feel like my life holds value. And so the reason why I share that is um, we've really become this place for folks like Ruben and myself and hundreds of others, if not thousands of others, can call home to be able to connect and rehabilitate our lives. That is such a powerful story and I have gone through those doors and I've seen that writing on the wall and the concept of knowing that you're valued when you walk through those doors like it's your home. People hang out there. They don't just come in and wait in line to find out how do I get this kind of service. The services are are not the culture. They're part of how we take care of each other. And so I, every time I go to Project Kinship, 
I feel like I belong. And I think when we started out, you used the term multiple marginalizations. There are so many things that create barriers for people, especially when they are linked to some kind of incarceration, their parents, a family member, or themselves. Those kinds of challenges, can you give us a little bit of an idea of what multiple marginalization might actually look like? Sure. Um, I first heard that term from an individual named, actually a mentor as well, Dr. Diego V. Hill. Um, I was at UCI uh, when I took his class, and um, he talks about being multiply marginalized. And so it's not just being marginalized in one area of your life, but multiple areas. So for example, maybe the neighborhood you live in, the type of jobs that are available, school that you go to, um, community resources. So um, it becomes very difficult to um, navigate those barriers. And so when you think about a lot of the folks that we work with, there's poverty, there's intergenerational violence, intergenerational uh, generational incarceration, mental illness, lack of resources, criminal records that impact somebody. I just learned uh, about two years ago as we were doing some advocacy work that due to a felony conviction, um, there's potentially over 46,000 collateral consequences that can impact somebody for uh, reentry or employment. And so um, I know for myself, many of us, we felt that, but I didn't realize there was a number attached to it, which now we know is over 46,000 um, collateral so, consequences. Wait, wait, the first time I heard you say that, I couldn't conceive of 46,000 of anything. And to know that, it, in my mind, I saw a series of endless hurdles that a track runner was trying to jump mm. and would eventually just be exhausted and never yes. get to the to the end. That's a great visual. I love oh. that, Sandy. Yeah. Well, feel free to add it to <laughs> your repertoire because you tell great to. stories. That is good. So give us like some of the the lowest barrier hurdles in that 46,000 and some of the largest, just a few examples. I've heard things like um, barber licenses. Uh, I've even heard things like dog barking licenses. I don't know if that's a thing, but even things like being able to go on field trips uh, at, your skid, at your kid's school, you know, um, then there's employment barriers, financial aid barriers, multiple barriers. I mean, a lot of it has to do with employment, housing, so, wow. And then if you have children, family members that are depending on you, you finally get out and, and then powerless to figure out how to get back and reintegrated. So let's talk about what you mean by restorative justice. Yeah, restorative justice, uh, we wrap it around healing. And so in our work, when we think about restorative justice and restorative practices, um, we utilize it as a theoretical framework on how to address harm. And so um, I know one approach is to be punitive. I think people have mis mistaken our, our approach as not wanting to keep folks accountable. It's not it at all. It's being able to 
uh, address the harm in a way where it restores a relationship back. And so, um, you know, I've never met somebody who was healed or got better with more pain. And so, you know, whenever there's a relationship that's harmed, uh, it's finding an approach or a way to uh, have both sides be heard and also come into a resolution to repair the relationship or at least to address the harm uh, in a more meaningful and positive way. Now, also, I'm very um, sensitive to victims as well. I think where I was really challenged with this was when I was doing death penalty work. And, you know, we, I was working with folks who had caused harm and um, oftentimes unthinkable harm. And that work was very powerful to see how harm was addressed and folks were kept accountable. So accountability is part of the healing process. And at the same time, the healing process will, in, in my understanding, prepare someone to become a part of my community, my, my city, my, um, my society, and not have barriers that reduce their ability to be part of, to belong, because we all want to belong. And, That's right. Yeah. So, so what does that look like on a daily basis at Project Kinship? Yeah, it's pretty crazy at Project Kinship every day in a in a good way. And so, I think at our schools, you know, with our kiddos there, our staff is um, are running around busy as heck, working with folks who are um, having challenges coming to school when they're at school having challenges and um, just caring for them. Also providing tools and strategies to soothe, regulate themselves, but also being able to just finish the day at school well while providing basic needs for them. And so schoolwork, all day long, our staff is running around working with kids. Um, At our offices, you know, folks are coming in all day as well. And so it's a combination of providing resources and providing the care and love for folks in the community who are caring uh, more than they can bear uh, when they come into our offices. I'm I'm always um, concerned about people who care about the kids, but when they turn 18, it's well, mm-hmm. they're an adult. So they're dismissed or they seem dismissive in any case. And when in my work with Um, child victims of human trafficking, there is so much compassion for these kids. But then when you bring adults to the conversation, then there's lots of judgment. Well, she should have known better that it was the way she was dressed, all of those kinds of things. Yes, And, And I constantly tell them when they were lured into this, when they were groomed, all those, this was the path they were on, their brains weren't done. And when they turn 18, we have science that shows their brains still aren't done. And so you were part of a recent project in adult court to mm-hmm. um, bring the heal, healing the cycle of incarceration that was kind of the title when you and the Honorable Maria Hernandez presented at Ensure Justice in 2021. Can you talk about your role and why that brings so much hope to young adults? 
Yeah, the court work has been amazing with Judge Hernandez and then and now also Justice Moriki. It's been awesome to be a part of because it's been a true collaborative. And so folks from probation, community-based orgs, the county, district attorney's office, um, have all come together to communicate and really see the kid. And so a lot of effort has been placed on each uh, unique individual, and we've walked with them. And uh, when challenges come up, we've gotten together as a team and figured out what can we do more of. And we've collectively um, uh, brought our efforts and our resources to to help the individual. And so it felt really good. The outcomes are, um, I feel like, uh, positive in a, in, in, in a way where uh, youth are coming out. They're successfully reintegrating back. And others oftentimes bumps and challenges. But I think what's been important is also um, the use of um, peer navigators. And so uh, Project Kinship, we've also included folks with lived experience and trained them and brought them to uh, be a part of the solution. Many of them spent years or decades terrorizing the community. And um, now they get to heal the community. And uh, it's been really cool to watch them do it through some of this court work where they could also mentor and provide support when they're in the community. And so um, I think the collaborative effort has been good. And um, I think that for youth, it wasn't just a one-time deal where we come in and say, hey, let us help you. It's been an ongoing process to say, hey, even there's bumps in the road, we're still going to walk with you to ensure your success. And most of the young adults that are in this collaborative court, and let me just pause here, our last episode of Ending Human Trafficking was an interview with the Honorable Judge Motaiki, and she explained really well what a collaborative court looks like in a juvenile justice context. And it's fairly similar to an adult court collaborative. Lots of partners. It's not just someone sitting on the bench deciding what your punishment will be, but it's about people coming around you, the support that a person needs. And when you think about young adults that are 18, 19, 20, 21, we know their brains aren't done. So there is for sure, we have science that shows that they're still developing and it's much easier to convince the community that there's an opportunity for another pathway forward. So in yes. in that program, what's the process for a young adult to be admitted to that collaborative court? My understanding is their name will come up and then the collaborative talks about the youth and then collectively they'll allow the individual in. And then uh, from there, we, we, we hit the ground running. You know, and then, of course, the individual has to accept, and then, um, and we all get together and figure out what the needs are, and really, it's as simple as that. And then we just start running and provide services and and start the journey. And here's the part that makes me um, really admire your team. Not every case has a great ending. And the the individual's commitment to this is part of the process. And yes. I want to know how you take care of your team when those situations are, 
you you get really vested in the people that you serve. So yeah, how do you care for your team? Yeah, we have this thing um, called serving versus saving. And um, early in my career, you know, I um, you can't help but want to save people because they're going through things that are unthinkable. And what I found out was um, it's easier to let God or the Coast Guards do the saving. And if we try to do it, we'll burn out. Um, I think there's moments that we do save people, but it's much better to serve because when we serve, we do the best that we can every day and we start fresh the new day. And service also allows us to be reached back. That's the important part that it's not a hand down. It's a mutual service to each other. And so when you serve folks on the margins and you stand with them there, you get reached back and you stand in awe, as Father Greg talks about, of watching folks carrying uh, more than they can bear and teaching us about resilience, love, care, and compassion for each other. And when it doesn't, something changes within us as we serve folks. This past month, or actually this year, our team has experienced significant loss in the community through gang violence and drug overdoses. And these are folks that we've been working with for years. And oftentimes with each funeral that we go to, we're crushed by the weight and pain of such tragedy of losing lives at such early ages. And then we sit back and we think about all those moments when we saw individuals come to life and experience their worth. And, um, and we remind ourselves that, that our lives are better because of them. And they were also able to experience their true um, identity and value um, as we were able to reflect back to them, their goodness. And so um, what I'm learning in my life now, life is so fragile and short and um, you know, there's so much trauma, but there's also so many moments of healing if we're able to um, recognize them in the present moment. So how would you advise someone to get connected with either homeboys if they're in LA or global homeboys or here in Orange County with Project Kinship? Uh, I would say just call, call or email. I think both have volunteer opportunities or um, yeah, I would just say call, call or email and maybe even show up. Um, Yeah. Just show up. I love to show up. up. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So last question actually kind of a conversation about young people getting involved with young people. One of the most profound experiences we had pre-COVID was partnering our Live to Free college students with Project Kinship in an embedded uh, club on a high school campus in a more compromised community. The impact for the participants from that school was significant. But I think the lives of our students were transformed forever. Can you kind of speak to, I, I think you did a little bit of that with the, the reach back, but how would community members begin to learn how to do that more? I think it's finding opportunities and places to be of service. And so I think ideally, one, if somebody has a passion for a certain area of work or service, um, I'd say just jump in and go for it. Find organizations and areas that will fuel their passion to give. Let's say if one does not have that, I would say explore, you know, find opportunities to 
connect, to volunteer, and to um, yeah, be of service to the community. I think that when folks do engage, you know, the magic is in the connection. The magic in, is in uh, the service and also being open back to being served back. And so um, I would say as simple as looking around, finding what your passion is, calling, connecting, and, uh, and just jumping right in. So the restorative practice trainings that are offered a couple times a year open to the community, can you describe what happens in that? Yeah, we've got multiple trainings, but I think the exciting one has been our partnerships with um, the local universities. We've done one with uh, UCI, Cal State Fullerton, and most recently at Chapman. And so in these trainings, we've mixed academia with practitioner-based experience and knowledge. And so it's really cool to see both worlds collide together and make something beautiful of it. And so it's a lot of strategies, a lot of tools and techniques, a lot of knowledge, a lot of theory uh, mixed in with a lot of interaction and group process with the students. That's why we loved working with you, because I could see the theoretical framework with the practical application of valuing another human being and creating a space where it's safe to serve together. I do have a quote from Judge Hernandez about you that I want to read. She said, Stephen Kim has an amazing capacity to make a person feel powerful. He's got to be one of the most understated leaders in Orange County. Um, And I feel that way too. And I want to learn more from you, from your team. And as we close this, can you tell us one more story of what happens when a person feels that power? Okay, let's see. First of all, that... I really thank you, Judge, for that quote. She's one of my heroes. And um, Sandy, you are as well. So just want to put that shout out that I uh, really appreciate the work that you've been doing in leading us in Orange County. And so um, that's important. I think that's important to share. I'll go with the story. So we recently had a graduation at Chapman University, and um, it was our Community Intervention Worker Certificate Program. And, um, oh, it's the great Ruben again. And uh-huh. uh after giving our certificates, he went home and he called me and he said, Hey, uh, thanks for letting me go through the program. I said, well, it was our pleasure. And I'm so proud of you. And he said, when I went home, I gave my dad my certificate. And he said, I've only seen my dad cry three times in his life. And the third time was when I gave him the certificate that said Chapman University on there in Project Kinship. And he says, as I was watching my dad crying, I asked him, why, why are you crying? And he said, remember, son, when you were in your 20s and kept going in and out? I saw you in prison. And he said, uh, remember when you were getting all those tattoos all over your face? And I told you to stop getting them. And he said, um, this is my life here. And um, I'm going to be in here for the rest of my life. And he goes, I never stopped believing that you were going to be somebody. And I never stopped believing that your life held a lot of worth. And he said, all these years later, you're out in the community, you're serving the community, and look, you got a certificate from Chapman University. And he says, son, I knew that I was always right. 
And what I took from that is everybody needs somebody to believe in them, no matter what their past mistake is. And everybody needs somebody to walk with them. And for myself, Ruben, and thousands of others who come through our doors of Project Kinship, who've lost knowing their worth, something powerful happens when folks come beside you, walk with you, and remind you that your life holds tremendous value, that God did not make a mistake on you when he created you, and that, that, um, that will walk with you. And so it happens every day, and we get to be a part of it. And so it really is an honor and privilege to also walk with you, Sandy, and all the work that you're doing as we're trying to heal our community. Wow. Powerful. I feel more powerful. The judge is right. But for our <laughs> listeners, I want you to know you can continue this conversation with Steve and Project Kinship. We'll have links to workshops that he's done. You can get involved. Go to projectkinship.com. Is that right? Yes. Uh, it's, dot I org, just yeah. checked it. Oh, it's dot .org? Okay. So. <laughs> okay. Well, we will make sure we get it right in the in the links, but there are wonderful stories that empower us to see the worth in someone that maybe our community has dismissed. And we need all the help we can get to have a thriving community and support our kids, support families, and see people healed. The healing part of Project Kinship is a mystery to many of us, but your team is so well connected that every time I visit, I want to think about how do I transition someday to where this is my, this is my part-time job in retirement. I absolutely encourage listeners Learn about Project Kinship, find out how you can get involved, and how you can learn the principles. We are serving, not saving, and we value and have worth for every single person. Thank you so much, Steve, for being with us this morning. Thank you, Sandy. Steve and Sandy, thank you for this conversation. We're inviting you now to take the first step. Go online and download a copy of Sandy's guide, The Five Things You Must Know, a quick start guide to ending human trafficking. It'll give you the five critical things Sandy's identified in her work here at the Global Center for Women and Justice that you should know before you join the fight against trafficking. You can get access to it by going over to endinghumantrafficking.org. We're also building and expanding our community of advocates. You can become a patron over at endinghumantrafficking.org through our membership through Patreon. Just go to endinghumantrafficking.org, click on the Patreon link, and you get access to additional content and resources. It's simple and affordable, and it continues to help support the work we're doing here in the Ending Human Trafficking podcast, and of course, more broadly, through the Global Center for Women and Justice here at Vanguard University. And in addition, if you're online, you may want to find on the website more information about the Anti-Human Trafficking 
certificate program. It's a, uh, a comprehensive program that will uh, help support you in your learning in a more formal capacity to learn about how to best come alongside and support our efforts to end human trafficking. All of that at endinghumantrafficking.org. And Sandy and I, of course, will be back in two weeks for our next conversation. See you then, Sandy. Thanks, Dave. Take care, everybody.